Amen. Let's uh, turn in our Bible this morning to 2 Kings chapter 23 again. 2 Kings chapter 23. As we are studying about the reign and person of King Josiah, Second Kings chapter 23, I want to read the first few verses of this chapter. Second Kings chapter 23. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for King Josiah and now ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit who helped Josiah in his day to be a reformer, would also be with us in our day that we too would be reformers in Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that the Spirit would bring a reformation to the United States. We pray for a renewal of the church. We pray for the re-evangelization of the West and the further evangelization of the rest of the world. We pray, Lord, that you would give grace and strength and help. You would restore us. You would bless us. You would encourage us. You would help us to fight the fight of faith. You'd help us to put on the whole armor of God. We pray, Lord, that today would be a great help to us, that we would feel our own faith in the Lord Jesus strengthened by the preaching. Lord, that it would be as iron in the blood and fire in the bones. We pray, Lord, you'd bring a sense of new life into us, that it would be as a trumpet blast. And Lord, that we'd come to this table also uh, thankful for all that Jesus has done and ready to go out into this world and serve him this week. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter 23, verses 1 through 3. Second Kings 23, verses 1 through 3. Hear now the reading of God's word. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies, and his statutes, with all his heart and all his soul, to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. Amen. Now, just as a way of reminding us about King Josiah, you'll remember that Josiah the king is a reforming king who comes at a time of great desperation for the people of God. It's been about 57 years of apostasy. Now, there was some intermittent revival at the end of Manasseh's reign when Manasseh finally was brought to a deep conviction of his own sin and he began to reform his ways. But I want to show you that that reform probably was only very temporary. Uh, And Ammon, his son, follows him and continues in his dad's old ways of wickedness for a couple years, and then is brought to an end. And then Josiah, who is a boy, a boy king, uh, comes to the throne. And he begins earnestly as a teenager to seek the Lord. And then as he enters into um, his age of majority, where he could then officially begin to reign and to rule on his own, he wastes no time, and he begins with several reforms. Number one, he begins with the restoration of the temple. And we talked about why why is it important that the temple be restored back to its uh, pristine condition? Well, because the temple is, is a picture of Jesus Christ. Christ, like the temple, is in the midst of his people. And so if you have a temple that is... Uh, is is falling apart, well then you're kind of saying in a, by way of picture that Christ 
is falling apart in the midst of his people. This temple was to point the people of God to the day when God would send his son and he wouldn't be back in the uh, inner sanctuary behind the veil, but he would come in the veil of human flesh. So the, the temple was, it was essential to the people of God and to the worship of Israel. So he restores the temple. Number two, they find the scriptures in the temple. Now, as I said, the reason that they, quote, find the scriptures may be because they were intentionally hidden from the wicked men and chiefly from those who might have been serving the Baal um, and keeping it from the priest of Baal. Remember that the temple begins to be occupied by foreign gods and remember, those altars uh, through Manasseh get set up in the court of the temple. And so it may be that the reason it was hidden was to protect it, not to keep it necessarily from the people of God. We don't know, but when they were doing the restoration of the temple, they find the law book and they read it to Josiah. And Josiah, hearing probably the book of Deuteronomy, rends his garments in grief because he realizes that the situation for Israel is even worse than he previously imagined. Now, he knew it was bad because the temple was in disrepair, but when he hears the law of God read, he realizes that the problems are far worse. And I don't need to remind you what Dr. Sinclair Ferguson has said when he says that the trouble with evangelicals today is that they are not discouraged enough. We are not discouraged enough. We aren't appreciative of really how bad things have gotten within the church in the West. Well, Josiah begins to realize just how bad it is through a renewed study of God's word. And so he begins to repent. And then he also inquires of the Lord through a prophetess in town in the old quarter of Jerusalem. And he sends some of his delegation to ask through her, whether the things are, that are written in the book are going to come to pass against him. He's concerned that the curses and the judgments that are threatened in Deuteronomy, if the people of God disobey, are going to fall upon him and upon the rest of Judah. And so they receive a word that is sort of encouraging, but also discouraging. And that is that God tells King Josiah that yes, indeed, because of the sins of his fathers, judgment is going to eventually come to Jerusalem and to Judah. But the good news is that it has been delayed because of Josiah's repentance, because of Josiah's contrition, because Josiah humbled himself with fasting and prayer and the seeking of the Lord, God is going to delay. Now, if that isn't a reason for you personally to humble yourself and fast and pray to the Lord, if nothing else for the protection of yourself and your own family in the midst of judgment, I don't know what else is. But here's a good reason for every Christian, no matter what condition we find ourselves in and what judgment God may or may not bring to this country, it always is going to behoove us to live holy lives, righteous lives privately, because the God who may bring calamity upon us corporately May yet also, this is the same God who keeps his eye on the sparrow that falls from the tree, will keep his eye on you and your family and will shield you in some ways from the calamities that are to come. So we should always do, uh, be seeking the Lord and humbling yourself. So young people, uh, that means you too you know, need to be seeking the Lord just as Josiah sought the Lord. Don't think, well, I'm just a kid. I'm just a teenager. I'm just a college student. Well, so was Josiah. And Josiah did what? He sought the Lord. He read the word of God. He inquired of the Lord. He prayed. He humbled himself. And blessings came to him and to the nation because of his obedience. So I want to encourage you who are young to seek the Lord because it might be through you that the rest of us get saved from temporal judgments. So please seek the Lord for your sake and for the sake of everybody in this room. We should all be seeking to go after the Lord. So there is this judgment coming, but there will be peace in his days. Now, you might think, okay, so Josiah hears this word from God. 
And so Josiah goes and he uh, gets out his lounge chair and sets it up by the pool and, you know, goes down to the Sea of Galilee and puts, puts his feet up. And that ends the story because God said, hey, you got peace in your days. Don't worry about anything, Josiah. You have nothing to worry about. Everything is going to be fine with you. It's going to be good with you in your days. So take ease and rest and enjoy yourself, right? No, that is not, young people, that is not what Josiah does. What does Josiah do? And it shows you how much love he has for the people of God and for his country. Josiah, even though he's told he's going to be blessed in his own days, he is motivated to what? To further the Reformation. He is motivated. Who knows? In Josiah's mind, maybe as they continue to bring about these reformations in Jerusalem and Judah, God is a merciful God, and maybe God will change his mind. And yes, Calvinists, God changes his mind according to the scriptures. Now, I know in one sense, God has these eternal decrees in which he never changes his mind, but he does decree to change his mind. And so that means he changes his mind in response to our human responsibility. So uh, Josiah does what? And, and, you know, it's interesting. You see the same thing with Jeremiah. You'd think, you know, Jeremiah gets word that, that the people of God are going to be restored and you would think, oh, uh, you know, Jeremiah's like, oh, good, we're going to go home, you know, and that's it. But what does he do? He begins to fast and pray in response to hearing that the people of God are going to go back. He, he all the more doubles down on the good news and hoping that maybe more good news will come to the people of God. So we've always got to be reforming ourselves, our family, our church, our community, we have got to be about the Reformation. We can't say, well, hey, you know, uh, this country's going to you know where in a handbasket, and that's it. You know, nothing I can do. Well, no, there's plenty for us to do. Or you can't just sit back and say, well, God's decreed that there would be a great church from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and I don't need to do anything about it because God will see to it, and God will evangelize the world. I don't need to get busy. No, that's not what we're supposed to do who believe in the sovereignty of God. It's because God is sovereign and God gives us these promises that we get busy about the things that are ours. Now, I want to show you three things that, that Josiah does in these three verses here. This is your outline for today. Number one, Josiah gathers all the people together. Josiah is going to bring this reformation and he's going to see to it that this reformation affects all socioeconomic groups, all types of people, uh, everybody who is anybody and everybody who is a nobody is going to be gathered there to hear the word of God. That's number one, he gathers all the people. Number two is that the word becomes central in the Reformation. The word becomes central to this Reformation of Josiah's. And then number three, Josiah renews the covenant with God and has the people enter into a new covenant with God. So there are three things. One, the gathering of all the people. Two, the reading of Scripture. And number three, the renewing of the covenant. And I want to bring applications to us there. Now let's look at our text again. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Then the king sent, this is Josiah, then the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. So notice the historian begins focusing on whom? On the elders. Okay, the representatives of the people, those that have been duly elected by the various people, by the tribes of Israel, those that represent them, uh, they are summoned first. All the elders of Judah and Jerusalem there are summoned to Jerusalem to meet with King Josiah. But the historian tells us, however, this is not an invitation for the elders only. He's just emphasizing that the elders are first and foremost sought. Then notice who is summoned as well. Then the king went up to the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him. So there is a summons for all the people to join with the elders in the coming to the house of the Lord. 
Then notice the historian. He specifically mentions the priests and the prophets. And then he says a second time, and all the people, both small and great. So we see that the, there are the elders, the men of Judah are mentioned, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem are mentioned, the priests are mentioned, the prophets are mentioned, and then again he says all the people, and he says the small and the great. So what does this mean? Well, first of all, it is that this reformation of Josiah's is for everyone in the church, in the visible church. It is for the office bearers, of course, but it is for non-office bearers as well. Everyone needs to hear the word of God and recommit themselves to the covenant of God. That's the point here. Now, I think you can probably, without much help, see the immediate application of this, don't you? And that is what? If there is to be a reformation in our own day, God help us, let there be a reformation here in this church and beyond, we need all men everywhere to hear the word. This means all manner of people. The office bearers first and foremost. Elders and deacons, you need to be men of the word. But also non-office bearers, you also need to be under the word. But all types of people, small and great, rich, poor, country, city, high school educated, college educated, the representatives of the people, those who are represented, Various ethnic groups, the Bible says there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither white nor black, there is neither Asian nor Hispanic, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. All types of people, whether you live in Atlanta or whether you are out in the country in South Georgia, we need all people under the scriptures. Josiah made certain that everyone who could, did attend the hearing of the Bible. Now, this is the same with King Jesus' ministry. Remember, Josiah is a type of Christ. And now we have a different king, a better king, as godly as Josiah was. We have a better king in Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus tell us in the parable of the wedding feast? He sends out the messengers, the representatives of God, to go out into what? The highways and the byways. Right? The, the highways lead to where? Where do your interstates lead? They lead generally to big cities, right? Where do your byways go? Your byways go to smaller communities in, in the state. Jesus is telling us that we are to bring the gospel of Christ uh, to small communities as well as to our largest city. We see this in the book of Acts. We see the Apostle Paul, for example, he preaches in what was a great city, the city of Athens in Greece. He's speaking and preaching at the Areopagus. Doesn't get much bigger than that, right? But also, what does the Holy Spirit do? He also has, in the providence of God, Paul preached at an island called Malta. In Acts chapter 27 and 8 there, you remember the, they get shipwrecked in the providence of God. Now, Paul didn't intend to go to that little island, but... That's where God had him go, right? For the purpose of preaching the gospel and healing the multitudes that they would give themselves to Christ. So you see how God wants all manner of people to be brought under the, the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. You could, for example, study the book of Acts and look at how the Philippian church gets started there. Luke focuses on really um, three main households that make up the church in Philippi. You remember that it begins with a successful businesswoman, Lydia, and all her household. Now, I don't know what that household meant. I don't know whether it meant kids uh, and slaves as well, but it, it says that Lydia came to faith and she and her household were baptized. So you have a, a prominent woman. Then you have a slave girl who was demon-possessed formerly until the Apostle Paul got so annoyed. Remember, she keeps shouting out, you know, these are the men from, who serve the God Most High, and she's going around town following Paul everywhere. Paul's getting so annoyed at this, he finally casts the demon out and uh, brings her to faith in Christ. So she joins the Philippian church, and then Paul, you know, because of that, ends up getting arrested 
No deed goes unpunished in a fallen world, right? Um, and so he gets arrested, and then there's a great earthquake, and the jailer comes to Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe on the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You and your household will be saved. And that's really the beginning of the Philippian church. But notice there, you've got different types of people there. You've got uh, a successful and prominent businesswoman who employs others. You've got a slave and you've got also a, a guy working as a jailer. You could look at the early church that Christ brought together in his earthly ministry. You have uh, fishermen, some of whom are successful. Remember that John and Peter, we are told, uh, they had employees, if not slaves. Um, they had employees because we're told that they left that work to others as they got up and followed Jesus. You have... Um, a tax collector, a government employee, a Roman centurion comes to faith in Christ. Luke, who's a physician. You have uh, women who financially support these disciples. So our mission as a church, following in the footsteps of Josiah, is what? Our mission is to bring all of God's word to the small and the great in our community as God's providence directs. We are to be um, in those places where there's government housing. We're to be on Country Club Road. We are to bring all of the community under the word of God. That's our task before us. You see it in Jesus' ministry to the Syrophoenician woman, the centurion, the paralytic, the lepers. You see it also, though, to the rich, Joseph of Arimathea. And to the powerful, Nicodemus was a part of the religious elite. So we find on a spectrum of the community uh, those that Christ was ministering to. And so when Josiah wants to bring about this reformation, he seeks to gather all the people together, officers, non-officers, men, and he's told all the people of God were there at the house of the Lord. So that is point number one, that the Reformation is to be widespread. The church is to gather in people from all types of backgrounds, all types of ethnicities, uh, to be a part of the church. That's the way it's always been. That's one of the ways that the church has stood out. I always thought it was interesting, you know, universities today, and even really back in my day when I was in college, was emphasizing, you know, diversity, diversity, diversity. You heard it all the time. And uh, I always thought it was interesting that of all the various groups on campus, it always seemed interesting to me that the most diverse group on campus uh, was the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship Group. Uh, if you had to take just a sample, was it the fraternities? Was it the KAs? No. Uh, the SAEs? No. They, they weren't the diverse group, you know, uh, Black Student Coalition? No, they're not the most diverse group on campus. Who was the most diverse group on campus? It was the, it was the Evangelical Christian group that had people from all these different nationalities and backgrounds and ethnicities that were brought together in Jesus Christ. And it's a reflection, really, of the nature of God. God himself is one, but yet he is three, the one and the many. And so it is with the church. We reflect that same principle that is within God himself. We are one in Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians, and yet we are many. There is, there is uh, many different gifts, Paul says, but one spirit. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, for we are one body. And thus we cannot uh, divide ourselves into these various groups. I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. And the, the body of, the, of Christ has not been divided, but we are all to be brought together under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's what Josiah is trying to do there. So we should also maintain that same kind of spirit. Now, number two, um, and I've already alluded to this, that after the gathering of all the people, what goes on? Well, they read the scriptures. The first thing that they do is they bring the word of God to bear on the situation. So Josiah has them come and meet at the temple he enters into the temple, and then we're told this by the historian in verse 2. And he, Josiah, read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. Now, that must have been a long service. Okay, so those of you who think I preach long, 
just keep in mind, they're standing outside in the temple, in the courtyard. Remember, this is a large, several acres of space. And they read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. Now, the king, though he is not uh, primarily an officer of the church, he's not a priest, he's not a prophet, he's the head of the state, but he is leading the redeemed people of God as king in hearing of the scriptures. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, that yes, we believe, and the Bible teaches in the Old Testament, there is to be a distinction, clearly, between the office of the state and the office of the church, okay? Uh, we often speak of separation of church and state. I don't like the term separation. I like distinction. There's a distinction because the word separation tends to, um, I think, leave in the impression in a lot of people's minds that the state is not accountable to God. That, that you do your church stuff here, and that's where you serve God, but over here, God has nothing to say. So I'm not a fan of the term separation of church and state. I like the term distinction of church and state. Both are supposed to serve the Lord. Okay, The civil magistrate in Romans 13, is, is the Greek word is diakonos, where we get our uh, word for deacon. That the, the, the civil magistrate is a deacon. He's a servant of God. And he bears a different instrument than the church does. The church has the keys of the kingdom. The civil magistrate bears the sword for the Lord, but to uphold justice and righteousness. So uh, we should understand, we should have, a, I think, a, a biblical view of the state, that the state is to be the servant of the Lord as it serves the people. And, and so... Um, you know, I, I have no objection to the civil magistrate reading the scriptures. It was interesting to listen to an old FDR fireside chat one time many years ago. And what really surprised me, though, was that FDR closed in prayer in Jesus' name. And I thought, wow, that's something that, you know, today they probably don't want you to know. But, uh, you know, and that was only, you know, in the middle of last century. That it was that the, that the president of the United States would publicly pray and pray in Jesus' name at the close of his address in, in these fireside uh, chats. There, here, Josiah, the king, an officer of the state, is leading the people to the reading of the scriptures. And so, not only does Josiah order the repairing of the temple, but he also is trying to do what? He's trying to eradicate within the culture biblical illiteracy. Now, the reason he wants to help eradicate biblical illiteracy is because it will lead, under the blessing of God, to good things for the state, for the people of God, and for the nation of Israel. Now, we're going to get there next week, but after the renewing of the covenant, after the covenant is renewed, the first thing that the people of God are going to do is they are going to go hard after idolatry in the land. So you, you have this, the word of God brings revival. The revival leads to a conviction. The conviction leads to repentance. The repentance leads to faith in Christ. And then it leads to a new commitment to Christ. From that comes what? Comes the reformation. The reading of the scriptures, the renewing of the covenant, and then next week we'll see the beginning of the eradication of the idolatry in the land. And this is the pattern that God sets forth in the scriptures. What do you see in the book of Acts? The spirit is poured out. Peter preaches a sermon. The people are convicted. They repent. They put their faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens? Reformation begins to take place. And, they, and people of God are, are added increasingly to the church and the church goes out, and what do we read in, through the missionary journeys? They go, and what happens to the idols? They fall. The idolatry begins to get cleansed in these cities. Now, it wasn't eradicated, obviously. You know, there's a lot of ministry still to be done, and you get that from the, you know, 
the letters and the epistles that they are writing. They're still dealing with idolatry. But you see in the book of Acts, the people doing what? Taking their idols, their magic books, etc., and throwing them in the town square to be burned. That's reformation. That's what it looks like. You, you, you hear the word of God. You're convicted. You put your trust in Christ. You renew the covenant with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And you begin a life of reformation. So we're kind of at that stage where now Josiah is bringing the word of God to the people at large. He's been personally convicted. He's been brought to repentance. He's been brought to faith in the Lord. Now he is seeking to bring all of the people under that same word of God. And I think there is a need today for us to get the word back out there. Um, If we were to survey people, even professing Christians, again, my famous man on the street interview, um, how many of them would not be able to name, at least in summary fashion, the Ten Commandments in order? If you ask them, please, tell me the Ten Commandments real quickly in order. You know, could they say, you shall have no other gods before me, make no graven images, you shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, remember the Sabbath day, honor your mother and father, all the way down to the end, you shall not covet. Could they be able to do that? What, could they, in summary fashion, do what we did in this worship service together as we read the law of God, we read the Ten Commandments? Our sermons today are cut down in many churches to one sermon a week, and that is often down to 25 minutes. And often those sermons have very little exposition in them, very little by way of meat. It's what John Calvin called pablum, which is basically what we'd call infant formula. That's often what is fed to people. We have a reputation here in the South of being in the Bible Belt. But you and I both know that that is very thin, isn't it? We, we have a reputation, but who's that reputation being placed against? Just Western secularism. Now, we are a people of great privilege, though. We are living in a time and a history of great privilege. You've been given the Bible in your own language. You know how rare that is in church history? You realize most Christians who have ever lived have never had a copy of the Scriptures. I mean, the, 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 you know, Gutenberg wasn't until like the 1500s. So it's not like everybody had a copy of the Bible sitting in their family room. Uh, you know... 1,800 years ago, 1,500 years ago, even 1,000 years ago. We are, we are a privileged people. You've, you've got a Bible. You've got the Word of God, the inerrant, infallible copy of the Scriptures. There are men and women who have bled and died for you to have that copy of the Bible in your hands. People who risked their lives. People who committed their lives. There were businessmen who smuggled these Bibles into Protestant nations in the midst of their cargo. They were Protestant businessmen. And they were, you know, they had a business like anybody. And, and, and the, but the guys who were in the shipping, they would put the Bibles in there with their stuff so it could get past customs. And once it was into the country, then the Bibles could be distributed to these other nations. Now, I say all that because I need to ask you, are you reading your Bible? Are you eating the scriptures? Are you reading it? Is it a part of your daily life? You know, the Lord giveth and the Lord can taketh away. There may come a day when you're in prison and you won't be given a copy of the scriptures. You, you, all you have is what you learned. You know, Paul and Silas, what are they doing in jail at midnight? They're singing the Psalms in prison. It's not like Rome said, here, have a copy of the scriptures while you're chained to this wall. Now, I'm glad our prisons do it, allow that to be done. Thank God for that. We have minister in our presbytery who was converted while he was in jail. Um, But I I say this because uh, not only is having a scripture copy rare in your own home, but It means that, as Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is required. Because you are privileged, God expects more of you. 
than he does of others who don't have the Scriptures at home. He expects you to use it. He expects you to read it. He expects you to pray over it. He expects you to believe it. He expects you to obey it. He expects you to reform your life according to it, like Josiah. The Bible, we are told from the Scriptures themselves, it is the lamp unto your feet. It helps you to walk in a world that is dark. It is a light unto your path. Look at Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. Show you a few psalms that emphasize the scriptures. The very first psalm, remember that Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of the introduction to the Psalter. You know, not only are the Psalms inspired, but they're organized in a particular way to help the people of God. And so Psalm 1 and 2 serve kind of as an introduction to the rest of the Psalter. But what does Psalm 1 say? Psalm 1 says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. But what? Verse 2, this is our point. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. He doesn't follow the way of the wicked, but he delights in the scriptures. He meditates, and in his law he meditates day and night. The scriptures not only are read, but he thinks about them. He contemplates the scriptures. Notice the fruit from that contemplation. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and the leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So there's blessing that comes when we read the Bible, we meditate on the Bible, we, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible. Look at Psalm 19. This one, too, is an interesting psalm. Psalm 19 is a psalm that speaks about general revelation, what we call general revelation, or that which is seen in nature, And then special revelation, that which is revealed in the Word of God. Notice that in the first part of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, you see what we theologically call general revelation. So you look at the stars, you look at the sun, you look at the moon, you look at Mount Everest, you look at the pine trees up in North Georgia, um, and, and you learn something from that of God. You can look at your hand. You can study, you know, the fact that you are a human being. You, you, you learn something about God as you study general revelation. But then Psalm 19, though, goes further than that, and it says that, the, but however, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. See, you can study general revelation all day long, seven days a week, and you still will never know about Jesus Christ. So the person who is living um, out in Asia that has no church nearby him, he can, he can look at the nature, but the nature will never tell him God's plan of salvation. You can only get that from the Scriptures. And so the, the psalmist is saying, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And he is going on. Look at verse 10. They are more desirable than gold. That is the commandments and the statutes of God. More desirable than money. Think about that. Yes, than much fine gold. It's better to be poor and have the Bible than to be rich without the scriptures. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, your servant is warned. And so, and look how he ends here. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, my, my redeemer, based on the word of God. And then I'll show you one more, and that is Psalm 119. Now, this psalm is broken into, into parts. And each section is represented. This is, a, this is a giant poem, if you will. Each section begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a little bit lost to us in the English. 
But Hebrew readers would see that each section begins with a new letter of the alphabet. That's why if you have an English translation there in your lap, notice that what is the first section, verses 1 through 8? It's the Hebrew letter Aleph. Okay, then the next letter is bet, then gimel, dalet, hey. The Hebrew alphabet, I'll say, yod, kaf, lamed. No, all right. That was the way we learned the Hebrew alphabet. So, it, but, what, but what is this about? It's about the Bible. It's about the Word of God. Look how, how it begins. Psalm 119, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. And so really, all of Psalm 119 is about the scriptures. Look at Bet, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Look at uh, verse 54. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. Uh, You could look at uh, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Look at verse 104. From your precepts, I get understanding. And and it just goes on there. So um, all of that to say that the scriptures even speak about the scriptures. The scriptures say in Psalm 37, 36, excuse me. In thy light we see light. It's, we, we, have, we have understanding by the scriptures. We understand even the world we live in by the scriptures. Jesus himself prayed that you would be sanctified by the word. I pray, take them not out of this world, Jesus said. But what? Sanctify them by the truth. Jesus said when he was tempted... Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is how central the word is to Reformation. The scriptures have to be at the forefront. We were talking about this in the high school Sunday school class. This is why, congregation, your Protestant pulpit here is in the middle of this church and not off to the side. The Protestants said... No, it's not the Mass that is central. The Roman Catholic Church had put the pulpit to the side and they had made the sacrament the central thing. We said, no, the Word has to be central. The sacraments sit under the Word. They're governed by the Word. They are the Word made visible to the church. But the word of God is what's central. It is the word of God that makes the church. The church does not make the word. The church is brought about by the word of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I've got to go to the final point here quickly. And then thirdly, after gathering the people and reading the scriptures, there is a covenant renewal that goes on in our text here. Look at verse 3. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. To walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people entered into the covenant. After the reading of God's word, the reading of God's law was finished. It didn't stop and they said, now it's time to go home. The king, the head of the state, in front of all the people of God, in front of all the representatives, in front of the elders, in front of the priests, in front of the prophets, and all the people at large, King Josiah renews the covenant. As the head of state, he pledges himself as king and representative of the people that he would serve the Lord. And he enters into a covenant. Notice here, we are told that he stood by his pillar. The pillar was the place where the king would stand. You remember, we saw this many months ago. Remember when Athaliah was overthrown and they put the boy king, where did they put him? They put him by the pillar. 
Here, Josiah stands by the pillar and he renews the covenant. He pledges himself. John Knox saw this as very significant in the Reformation in Scotland, that the king must pledge himself to God, and then under God he must pledge himself to be faithful to the people of God. The people pledge themselves to God, and then they must pledge themselves under God to be faithful to the king. Knox saw this as kind of a fourfold covenant renewal ceremony. Now here, the historian kind of sums it in two. Simply, the king being faithful to God understood that the king would thus be faithful to the people, and the people would be faithful to God and thus subsequently faithful to the king. But this is what we called a covenant renewal ceremony. Now, covenant ceremonies, if you are, are a Presbyterian uh, here, this is uh, a part of your Presbyterian tradition, uh, that, that, that in times of revival and awakening, that one of the things that historically has been done uh, is that the people of God would gather together and sign a covenant. In 1638, they signed the National Covenant in Scotland. Later, they would sign uh, the, the, the Solemn League and Covenant as the people of God. And what were they doing as people? And as representatives in the state, they were pledging themselves to Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ would be Lord over us and our nation. It was what was known as a, a, a covenant renewal service. Now, here's the theological significance I want you to see for us today. Number one is this. It is Jesus Christ, our King, who renews his covenant with you, his people. He does it first where? Where does the covenant renewal ceremony take place in Jesus' ministry? It takes place, I would argue, at the end of his ministry in the upper room at the Passover. Jesus Christ does what? He pledges himself to be faithful to God. He breaks the bread and he gives it to his disciples and he says, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And at the end of the meal, he gives up the cup and he tells them, this is my blood for the remission of sins. This is the new covenant in my blood, he says. And so Jesus Christ inaugurates a new covenant. And what we do is that we, through faith in Jesus Christ, enter into that new covenant. We are about to come to the Lord's table here. And what are we doing here at this table there's a case you can make that one of the things, we're doing many things here, but one of the things that we are doing in addition to remembering the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf, but we are pledging ourselves as Christ's people to a renewal of the covenant. We are pledging ourselves to be faithful to God and by God's grace, faithful to one another. We are pledging as the disciples of Christ to enter into this new covenant anew. And that in doing so, we will receive the blessings of the covenant by God's Spirit. Let me make these final applications. First of all, I want to speak to anybody here today who's yet, not yet a Christian. Whether you are here and you are part of the visible church, you've been baptized but you haven't yet believed in Christ, or whether you're visiting and you've never been a part of a church, you've never been baptized before, what is this mean for you. The first thing is you need to enter into the covenant formally yourself. How do you do that, you say? How do I enter into a covenant? You enter into a covenant by faith in Jesus Christ. He's the mediator of the covenant. He's the one who, if you will, represents you in this covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more people. And what you are doing is you're saying, I'm willing to be a part of this agreement. What's the agreement? The agreement is this, that I will be a part of God's people and God will be my God. And to put it in the words of Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's why we believe in household baptisms, by the way, congregation. That on the, on the mere profession of even one believing parent, we baptize the whole household. Because it's not to be an individual thing. We are covenanting together as a, as, a, as a house to belong to the Lord. And so the first thing you must do is you must repent of your sins 
And you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is your king. He has died for you on the cross. God raised him from the dead, and he has seated him in heaven at God's right hand, where he reigns and he rules with all power and authority. You must enter the covenant through faith in him. You must pledge yourself. I'm not going to make you walk an aisle. I'm not going to make you raise your hand. I'm not going to make you sign a card. I am, in the name of Jesus, going to command you to believe in Jesus Christ and to put your trust in him and not in yourself, to turn from your sins. Listen, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He takes no pleasure in sending you to hell. He wants you to turn and believe and trust in his provision through Jesus Christ. Now, secondly, I want to say something to those of you who are children of the covenant. You've been baptized. What, what say you? What is your response? Well, your response is according to your abilities, and obviously there's various abilities according to your age and grace, but you too must believe on the promises of salvation in Jesus Christ. You are a part of the people of God already, even if you are not yet a communicant member of this church. By way of your baptism, you have already been included and engrafted visibly into the church of God. And therefore, you have an obligation as a child of the covenant to pledge yourself to Jesus Christ as well. When is the age of accountability, Pastor? The age of accountability, my friend, is when the moment you were conceived. That's when you're accountable to God. It's not when you're two, it's not when you're four, it's not when you're six, it's not when you turn 12. It's the moment you are conceived, you are accountable to God for everything you say, you think, you do. And so young children must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus invites the little children to come unto him. He got furious one of the times you see him at his most level, greatest level of anger with his disciples was when they prevented the little children from coming to Jesus Christ. As though this was not a thing for children. It was something for adults only. Little children, you have been given great promises. Own those promises as your own. And then finally, for you, who have already put your trust in Jesus Christ. This is, I think we see a command for us to renew the covenant with Jesus Christ. A new today to pledge ourselves this day and every Lord's Day to the work of reformation. It's an ongoing work. Luther said in the very beginning of his 95 Theses, he said that the work of repentance was an ongoing work in our lives. It's not we repent at the beginning of our Christian life only, but it is the beginning of our repentance at the beginning 